The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Last week, for the increase of ethnic harmony in the church, we sought grace from God to obey the new commandment of Jesus. Love one another just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. And this week, on Sanctity of Life Sunday, our text points us back into the track of love being a conduit of the love of God for us in showing love to one another. And uh, I want to pray for grace that we would apply this text, even though it's a general text, to sanctity of life and how to live in our present day. So let me, let me say this, that our text calls us to two things. Text calls us to sober-minded prayer, and our text calls us to continue earnestly loving one another. And there's more there than that, but that's my summary. And uh, let me pray now for a particular grace that we might apply this text, these things, sober-minded prayer and earnest love for one another to our valuing of human life. Father in heaven, sovereign creator God, you have created us in your image, male and female, every ethnicity, every size, every intellectual capacity, every age, you have created us in your image, and therefore we are of great worth to you and in the universe. Human beings are, and that's what we mean by the sanctity of life. And, and we live in a culture that devalues human life and mistreats human beings and, and kills human beings, the unborn and, and the aged. And so I pray that you would give us grace to live wisely for the glory of your name in this present age. I pray that we would not merely be pro-life, but that we would be pro-God and pro-love. Help us now in Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Peter writes this first letter to first century Christians uh, living under Roman rule, uh, living in the area that's presently modern-day Turkey. And he writes, them, writes to them with a, a special burden to prepare them to suffer in hope. There's persecution and scoffing going on. He writes to equip them to respond to mistreatment with goodness and righteousness, and he writes to encourage them to live countercultural lives of holiness and love. And so Peter assures them 
He assures the believers to live in hope, expectant hope of the return of Christ. I'm so glad. Uh, thank you, Renee and the worship team for, for singing the songs that you sang and just kind of um, just yearning for the second coming of Christ. That's where Peter's coming from in this text. He holds out the hope of Christ's return. He looks around at the, at the current culture and in verse 3, chapter 4, you know, he looks around and says, living in, in sensuality and passions and drunken orgies and drunken parties and lawless idolatries. Looks around and sees that and then verse 5, he, he assures the church like, Jesus is coming again at which even those who persecute the church and live in godlessness will have to give an account to him, this is verse 5, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So there's the second coming hanging over the church in hope. And so then our text begins right there with Peter saying, the end of all things is at hand. This is an encouraging word to believers. The second coming is coming soon. The end of all things is at hand. It means that in, in terms of God's plan of redemption, the time is ripe for this present age to end and the full-blown uh, unveiling of the kingdom and reign of Christ is coming and Jesus will reign with righteousness and peace and, uh, and, and blessing and joy forever, ever, forever and evermore. It's coming, it's coming. It's just around the corner. Verse seven, the end of all things is at hand. He's coming, he's gonna make all things new. So then now the question in our text is, well, how do we live? In light of this present sinful age, in light of the imminent return of Christ, how do we live? You know, do we just kick back and Jesus is coming, you know, he's coming. We don't have to engage at all. We don't just, he's, forget it. Get in our cave and how do we live? Verses 7 through 11, as I said, can be summed up. I sum it up in two instructions. First, he says, be sober-minded sober for prayer. And secondly, he says, continue earnestly loving one another. That's how we should live. Being sober-minded for prayer and continuing to earnestly love one another. And both, as I said, are general calls, but it seems fitting that both be applied this Sanctity of Life Sunday. So let's take them one at a time. Be sober-minded for prayer. Why, why does Peter say that? Why doesn't he just say pray? Be a people of prayer. It'd be a lot easier. Therefore be self-controlled. I mean verse 7. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What's he getting at? Well, if our minds are dull and filled with mind-numbing stuff or God-minimizing stuff of our day or filled with, you know, stuff that's the latest headline that might not be the most important thing, you know, or inebriated by the pleasures and comforts of our affluent culture, well, then, like Novocaine, our, our, our thoughts will be dull and though we pray, our prayers will not be very meaningful. 
Like a numb brain doesn't pray very effectively. Put it in a sentence. A drunk brain does not pray very effectively. So, the end of all things is at hand and wickedness is on the rise along with the scoffing and disdain for Christ and his people. Peter says, when that's going on, believers must remain self-controlled, meaning sensible and serious for the sake of prayer. We must remain sober-minded. These words are so similar, meaning not thinking like a drunk, but being alert and clear-headed, soberly observing what's going around us, seeing with the eyes of faith and with the lens of the Word of God. And by that sober-mindedness, going to prayer. It's a very thoughtful kind of a prayer that Peter's calling for. So how might this call to self-controlled, sober-minded prayers apply to this morning's focus on the sanctity of life? Let me try. For the sake of your prayers, analyze the news. Read the news thinking, how can I pray about this? Pray about the Supreme Court deciding to hear the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case this summer. You know that that is the law that's aiming to protect babies from abortion after 15 weeks in the state of Mississippi. Pray about that because as that ruling goes, so goes the authority of states to set limits like that on abortion. For the sake of your prayers, reflect on the spiritual gravity and impact of the fact that 63 million children have been aborted in the United States of America since 1973. Think about that. What, what effect does that have on a people? And pray about that. For the sake of your prayers, reflect and mourn on the statistics that show, according to a 2019 New York Times article, that nationally, black women continue to have the highest abortion rate, almost three times that of white women. And for the sake of your prayers, reflect on the, the fact that in some places, I don't know a, a hard number, but in some places of the country, 95% of children testing positive for Down syndrome are aborted. Think soberly about these things for the sake of your prayers. For the sake of your prayers, consider how, how you might thoughtfully engage people with whom you disagree about the value of life. Take time to get to know them. Pray for them accordingly. Not just about their position, but pray thoughtfully about them, how they might know the fullness of God 
in the grace of Christ. For the sake of your prayers, meet adoptive parents and their children here at Bethlehem and pray for them that a God-given spirit of adoption would fill each adoptive family at Bethlehem that with a love between parents and children that it would accord with the God the Father's love for each of us as his blood-bought and adoptive and born-again children. I mean, I have been so blessed. We have been so blessed through the years by the prayer support of the people of Bethlehem in thoughtfully praying for us as adoptive parents on our journey, our short journey. And likewise, for the sake of your prayers, pray for those who are doing foster care. Think about what's that like? Talk to the parents who are leaning into foster care. For the sake of your prayers, reflect on the range of issues that cheapen human life in our world. Things such as the opioid crisis, killing 50 million people, or excuse me, 50 million, 50,000 people in the United States in 2019. Well, that's a life issue. For the sake of your prayers, reflect on 4,000 worldwide killed in human trafficking Women, girls, men, boys. That's a global number, 4,000. For the sake of your prayers, <laughs> consider how we might be a means of grace to New Life Family Services as they open a crisis pregnancy center about a mile and a half, two miles from here, just off of Chicago and Franklin Avenues. Pray for the complexity of getting that off the ground. It's hoping to open in April or May. And pray about the complexity of doing ministry in the Phillips neighborhood. Pray for the medical providers who terminate the lives of little ones and the impact that this might have on their hearts and minds and souls. Think about that and pray accordingly. And pray for women who suffer loss and guilt and the physical and emotional ramifications as a result of participating in abortion themselves. You know, think deeply about that and listen to the women among us and pray accordingly. And in light of yesterday's march, one of the things I always loved or appreciated about the March for Life is when we got on the bus, we would often say and pray, uh, this is more than just a political thing. We want to pray that abortion in America would be as unthinkable as slavery has become. Heart change. So... I think it's a beautiful word to us. In general and in the cause of life, verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers.
That's not all, Peter says. Secondly, he says, he, he says, continue earnestly loving one another. It's verse eight. Above all, keep on loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. It's a priority. See the word above all or the phrase above all. It's a call to earnest, authentic, genuine love, real love for others. And uh, I, I looked at this call for earnest love and I noticed that Peter had mentioned it before in First Peter 1, verses 22 and 23. And it's interesting there that he roots authentic love in being a Christian, being, receiving the love of God for us in Christ and being born again. I'm just going to read it. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a, for a sincere brotherly love Sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a heart, from a pure heart, since you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. So, this genuine love, this real love, is Christian love. It's, it's love that comes from people who've been born again who've received the love of God and then turn that love of God that we've received outward into sincere brotherly love and earnest love from a pure heart. That's the kind of love that Peter's calling for. Not not thin love, not postage stamp love, not showy love, but real, gutsy, genuine love. Now, what reason does Peter have in mind for this expectation of earnest love? And and the reason he gives might surprise you. You see it there? Since love covers a multitude of sins. Huh. Where did that come from? (laughs) Like, since love covers a multitude of sins. You think about it. Peter knows this dynamic of love. He knows this. How many times had Peter sinned and been aware of his sin? You know, remember in the boat, oh, away from me, for I'm a sinner, he says to Jesus. And the most painful sin Peter committed against Jesus, as I look at his life, happened when he denied Jesus three times the night, Je- the night before Jesus was crucified. <sighs> so Peter denies him on that Thursday night. And then on Good Friday, Jesus gives his life as an atonement for the sins of his people. Do you know what atonement is? Atonement is covering. Jesus died to cover the sins of his people so that when God in his wrath looks at his people, 
He does not see our sin, but sees the righteousness of Christ. Peter knows this. Jesus atoned for his sin and for ours in his death. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, you know, he, he didn't come looking after Peter to say, where is that two-bit, no-good piece of junk who betrayed me? It's not what Jesus did. I got to tell the believers, I got to tell all Jerusalem what he did. Do you know what he did to me? He betrayed the Son of God. He, he denied the Son of God. That's not what Jesus did. Having died for the sins of his own, including Peter's, Jesus quietly restored Peter. Remember? John 21. With three questions. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Third, second question. Third question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? This, this is Jesus' conversation with Peter after the denials. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then after Peter answered, yeah, Jesus said to him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Redemptively and restored and forgiven by the grace of Christ, Peter steps into the task of tending and feeding the flock of God, the church in Jerusalem. Now, I think Peter presents it this way. You know, uh, keep on loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I think he assumes you know that. He's not speaking just for himself. <laughs> Peter's assumption is that every believer knows this dynamic of the gospel, of the grace of Christ having your sins covered by the blood of Christ, receiving his forgiveness and being reconciled to God through him. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, you, you ought not misunderstand Peter here. Peter's not saying love covers up sin as if to hide sin. Adam and Eve did that, and that's not what he's getting at. David speaks of that in Psalm 32. He admits trying to hide his own sin. I'll read it for, for you. This is Psalm 32, verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He said, I, I was trying to hide my sin and, and it was not working. But then, here's the difference between covering up. Treat that what I just read is covering up, but the same psalm talks about covering. Now listen, Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then he, he goes on. This is in, in verse 5 now. 
I acknowledge my sin to you, to God. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Not covered up, but covered. In the fellowship of Christians, shaped by the gospel, there are many sins and offenses. Here at Bethlehem, in this fellowship of believers, there will be many times when we offend and sin against one another. Just like in families, just like in marriages, just like in dorm rooms, everywhere. At such times, Peter says, above all, keep on loving one another since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 is similar in saying love bears all things. could also be translated love covers all things. It's an explanation of what forbearance means. Forbearance and patience with one another even as we forgive one another. So then the question comes, so look, if we don't announce the sins of believers to others or the sins of anyone to others, will not their sin increase? Well, now, there is a place for bringing bringing, uh, sins before one another. Matthew 18, 15 makes it really clear. If your brother sins, go show him his fault. And again, that's not every sin. There's a category called forbearance being patient with one another. But sins that rise to a certain level, we, we speak to one another that we might win ourselves a brother or sister. And there's a place for, for church discipline when, when the elders would bring a, 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 sin, a case of sin so severe that we would, that would call into question the salvation of the one sinning. And there's a process for that. And there's a place for calling in the God-given authorities like the police when there's terrible things going on in marriages or families or the church. Those things aren't prohibited by this text. But rather, in the routine ebb and flow of the Christian life, Peter says the predominant flavor of a gospel community is this. Keep on loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. Okay, how might that be expressed in in reference to the sanctity of human life? I was helped by James 5, 19. I'll just read it for you. My brothers, if any one among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, there's a glimpse. So it might be in reference to sanctity of life or someone who's heading toward abortion or devaluing human life, you might in love lead them away from falsehoods, lead them into the truth of God, 
And would it not in, in, entail praying for their repentance that they would turn away from unbelief and sin and, and turn to Christ in faith and thereby your love would cover a multitude of sins? It's one glimpse. When a son or a daughter or a friend or a neighbor or a member of your small group or a woman you just met or someone you just met lets you know that they have endured or participated in an abortion or are unexpectedly pregnant and confused about what to do, how do you respond? Unfortunately, many times Christians have tried to bring, up, bring about real change in others by shame, by humiliation, disdain, disgust, disgrace, contempt, telling others so that they can pray more effectively, broadcasting sins in order to shame this friend or neighbor into repentance. These outward efforts to change someone from outside in with shame, they don't work. It is not gospel motivation. It doesn't work. It might get compliance, but it won't get change. Well, what brings about the inward change? Love does. Gospel does. When people have sinned, what they need most for repentance and restoration is love, reflective of the gospel. Remember, it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. So I pray we would be the kind of people who engage in general and in particular in reference to the cause of life. Be the kind of people who, who love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. May that be the gospel fabric of our community. Peter goes on with two more two more statements that really press in what, it, what earnest love looks like. I'll just touch on these quickly. Uh, he, he says, love others earnestly in glad hospitality. That's verse 9. And love others earnestly using your gifts in the strength that God supplies. So just briefly, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I'm taking this as a, as a subset, uh, an, an ex explanation of what earnest love looks like. Well, it looks like hospitality. It looks like showing hospitality with one, to one another without grumbling. The, the word hospitality is, is very interesting. I mean, a couple of things. The word is used to describe this assortment of practical expressions of kindness that we can show to strangers who are in need. You know, the needs of strangers would be housing, food, drink, other basic provisions of life. Very nitty-gritty love. 
nitty-gritty need meeting. But, but also, the, the word translated hospitality is a compound word. Putting together two words, the word for friend or brother with the word for stranger. So practice hospitality means practice stranger love or uh, treat a stranger as a friend kind of love. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. And do so without grumbling. And, you know, if you just pause for a second, you know hospitality is messier than generosity. Generosity, write a check, put it in the mail. <laughs> hospitality, I mean, I literally brought a guy home from church one, this is a long time ago, I just thought of it right now. Brought a guy, he didn't have a place to stay, you met him down here, um, and I took him home to my house, right, you know, just eight minute walk from here. And... Uh, practicing hospitality. I give him stuff to eat, and, and uh, it was weird. <laughs> it was weird. I, had a, I had a guy uh, who wanted to stay up all night in my living room, and, and, and at one point he, he said he wanted to pray, and then he was kneeling down on, in the middle of my couch, and then he fell asleep right there, and then I went, you know, like, what do I do? Do I go upstairs and, and just practice hospitality without grumbling? Can I get you something in the morning? Would you like some coffee? You know, <laughs> just hospitality is messy, up close, personal. Uh, Peter's point, resist the temptation and grumble about that. And uh, glorify God in your stranger love, in your love for even people that you don't know. And, and there's hundreds of ways we can practice hospitality as God's people, as a church, and, and there's many ways to do that in regard to sanctity of life. And what I thought I'd do right at this point is do this. Honor many of you who've practiced hospitality. You're kind of like, like that. Let's do it like that. Let's, let's honor those. Some of you have welcomed women and families into your lives who've chosen life in difficult circumstances and you've walked with them. Some of you have invited women into your lives who are suffering under the weight of having aborted a child and, and guilt and, and feeling regret and some experienced depression. You've invited them into your life. Some of you have cared for children from hard places and covenanted to adopt them and love them as your own for the rest of your lives or to the end of their life. And some of you have done likewise with foster children. That's hospitality. That up close, messy, nitty-gritty, basic need meeting, heart-to-heart, genuine love. That's, that's what Peter's talking about. Second thing he says, and I'm going to close with this, love others earnestly by using your gifts in God's strength. Just look at verse 10. I'll just circle t- three of the words there. Uh, Peter's saying, look, it doesn't matter who you are, believer, Older, young, rich, or poor, each, each, see it there, second word, each believer has been given 
gifts. Or he says a gift. And I think it's wise not to just, not to equate that with a list of gifts. Like, well, there's only seven gifts. And, you know, no. Each has received a gift. A gift of uh, personality, a gift of resources, a gift of opportunity, a gift of a brain, a gift of skills. Each of you has received a gift. And notice that this other word, uh, varied. See it there? Uh, varied grace. You've received a gift by grace, and they're varied. They're all kinds of things. And, and so then, then the word stewards comes in. Uh, as stewards of God's varied grace. So you've been given a gift of grace. They're very different. They're, ver- they're assorted. Now, They've come from God and so steward those. Be good stewards of those. God gave them to you to be stewarded. How? In love. In genuine love. Not to be kept for yourself. And so that's what he's saying here. And and, uh, this just kicks wide open the door of expressions of love in the church. And for the cause of life. I mean, just think of this. You have a gift and you have a gift. And they're different. They're varied. And all these gifts have been given to us by God to be stewarded. They're his. For the cause of love. I can't even get my brain around the number of things that God might do through you and you and you and you and you and you and you. you in the church, and in the cause of life. Let me know what you're thinking. You know why I say that? I, 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 at moments like this, people come, come back to us in an email or phone call or down front, and they say, you know, I think God's calling me too. And that happens. <laughs> and it happens for a long time. I've seen this. So, so with that as the call to each of us to use our assorted and varied gifts in the cause of love, the real, the real, the note I want to end on is verse 11. That, you know, as you do all this love in the church, in the world, in the cause of loving earnestly and as you show hospitality and as you use your gifts, as you do all this, don't delude yourself that you're doing it in your own strength. It's not about you. It's not about the glory of you. It's a gift. It's from God. And, and it ought to be deployed by the sufficient grace of Christ or by the power of God, by the enablement of God. So there's a whole mindset that Peter has in mind. You know, there's a manner, verse 11, whoever speaks, this is the manner with which we love, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And here's the purpose in order that in everything God may be glorified 
through Christ Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this word to us, this call to be sober-minded for the sake of prayers and to love one another earnestly without grumbling in concrete expressions of hospitality and using our gifts in all kinds of ways. We pray for particular grace that you would mobilize us. I pray for the two levels. I pray that you would mobilize us to this text in prayer and love in the church and I pray you'd mobilize us in particular this Sanctity of Life Sunday in the cause of life for the glory of your name in the strength that you supply. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.